Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we're looking back as well as looking forward. We're looking back 10 years to when the Liberal Party dumped Malcolm Turnbull as leader for the first time. Our forward outlook is on the economy as the airwaves are full of talk of stimulus, be it fiscal or monetary or whatever. We'll question that. And the first issue, though, we're going to look at is the Morrison government's laws to tackle rogue unions, which got sunk in Parliament this week by Pauline Hanson, amongst others. Why did she do that? And were the laws worth fighting for? In our regular books and culture segment, we honour a key work of the late Clive James, discuss a new book about the history of music, another with the wonderful title Against the Left, and a book you'll only hear about on this podcast, a self-help book from Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News. Thank you, Gideon, for that one. Don't forget, Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To learn more about our work and all the epic research undertaken by all the very smart people we have here, please go to ipa.org.au. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, uh, which, of course, all members get in the mail four times a year if you join. Uh, but it is time now to introduce the other panellists. Uh, first of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Thanks as always. On my left is Kurt Wallace, Research Fellow at the IPA. Good morning. Great to have you back. And of course, our esteemed Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. G'day, Scott. Ah, uh, yes, uh, the, the golden tonsils of Gideon <laughs> Rosner back on the, uh, the podcast table. I have to he come on the show more often. He doesn't need more buttering up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, as, on me. as I mentioned, uh, we're going to start with a topical issue, which is uh, what happened in Parliament with the government's ensuring integrity bill, Chris. That's right, Scott. So the government was um, apparently somewhat surprised last week when its um, union bill, the uh, the ensuring integrity bill, or more formally the Fair Work Registered Organisations Amendment, ensuring integrity bill in 2019, was defeated in the Senate when the government failed to secure... Um, the One Nation support that they thought they were going to get. Um, uh, there's a few things to talk about here, including um, uh, how One Nation thinks about the union movement, but to talk about the bill initially. So the bill has been weaving its way through um, Parliament for actually a couple of years now, but the, the intention of the bill is to allow courts to disqualify unions and union officials from serving in a, quote, registered organisation, a union or a employer group. This is partly in response to the Royal Commission into Trade Unions recommendation. One of the interesting things about this bill is that it would allow any person who has, quote, sufficient interest in um, uh, union governance to apply to the court for um, uh, to disqualify a union or a union official. You will be disqualified or the court will rule you are disqualified if they determine that you've done things like violate the Fair Work Act and so forth. Um, I might initially throw to you, Gideon, on the bill itself. Mm. I mean, what, what's your... Re- it, it, was this good policy? Is this, um, is this a loss for, for, for freedom as Look, you see it? Or It's not... Terrible policy, which is sadly more than you can say for a lot of what uh, this coalition government does and what, what the Liberal up, Party does these days. Um, but 
I'm not crying into my beer over the fact that it was lost. I mean, yes, union thuggery is a problem, but frankly, the Liberal Party and the Coalition has been banging on about union thuggery for 10 years. Uh, for one thing, it's a silly thing to do, or it's a, uh, a pointless thing to do politically because it doesn't really seem to shift any votes. Every time the Liberal Party runs on union thuggery, whether it be 2007 with the scare campaign that was ran, whether it be the Daniel Andrews election in 2014 about John Setka, it, the, people always it, people that like it, but they don't. It doesn't, you know, affect any votes. But on a, on a public policy level, um, the problem with the unions isn't their bad behaviour, at least not entire, entirely. The problem with industrial relations in this country that is extremely overregulated that we have, you know, among the highest minimum wages in the developed world, or the highest minimum wage in the world, we have an extremely complicated uh, process of setting minimum wages across industries via industrial awards, via enterprise bargaining agreements, which are now so um, complicated as to become useless. So the bottom line is nothing about this bill would have done anything about the fact that we have a combined youth unemployment and underemployment uh, rate of 30%. Nothing about this bill would have prevented uh, the or done anything about the fact that small business owners are being dragged to uh, the great kangaroo court that is the Fair Work Commission uh, and hit with ten, twenty thousand uh, $20,000 fees for staff that they've hired for one day under unfair dismissal laws. Nothing would have prevented um, the... Again, the, the 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 huge amount of paperwork that comes with giving people a job mm -hmm. in this country. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm sympath I'm sympathetic to that argument. But there are there are genuine issues there, and and uh, in terms of uh, say the, the construction industry, of course, is 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 uh, most famously the the industry where the uh, the rule of law doesn't run. I th I think there's something playing out here, which is uh, I'm not sure this bill is would have actually achieved. Uh, what the government hoped it would, because mm. really, the what's changed, what's changing the rules of the game, is the tremendous power that uh, individual unions have accrued in this system. I, I was reflecting this morning uh, that we we are in the world that uh, Bill Kelty and Bob Hawke envisaged 40 years ago, uh, when there was the union movement was fragmented. Um, and individual unions uh, could be picked off, if you like. Uh, they could be deregistered. Um, uh, they, the union leaders, um, as late as the late 60s, uh, could be jailed for breaches of industrial law mm. um, until that was eventually overturned. And they said, we're going to have big unions that are going to be so wealthy, so powerful, that they won't be able to be touched. And that is actually the world we live in. Yep. This, this targeting of union officials uh, is, to me... Um, something that they've reached for in the kit bag because essentially they've now got so much money mm. that the uh, the financial penalties that the federal court has been imposing on unions for the numerous breaches mm. of of the law are simply not affecting behaviour. Mm. So they've they've reached in there and they've taken the lead from the Royal Commission and said, well, you know, they should be governed like corporations yeah. and we'll target the officers of the union. So. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, not, I, I, I'm I not think sure that's it's a really, ideal. We might throw it to Kurt. So, Kurt, uh, as, as Scott says, one of the big arguments that the government has been making over the last couple of years is, well, let's govern unions like corporations. Corporations, you um, can be deregistered as a company officer. You, um, uh, the, the court have all these tools. Why don't and and on one side, but why don't we apply the same on the other side in the industrial relations bargain? Do you do you buy that argument? Do you do you, are unions and corporations should they be equivalently regulated? 
Well, I think there's um, some key differences between corporations and unions, but ultimately I think that the members should be the ones who are deciding who uh, they officiates uh, the union. And I don't think that moves, even if it's a move to make it consistent with corporations, is a move in the right direction. I think that um, there are structural problems with how unions operate based on a lot of um, legal protections they have in the law in the first place that gives an incentive for them to um, to behave the way that they are. Mm. And just replacing um, you know, the people in those positions as officials, I don't think will solve the, the underlying problems. No, this is what I was incredibly struck by doing the, the reading up on this bill. I mean, these unions are regulated by something called the Registered Organisations Commission, which is only a couple of years old. Um, and when we complain about um, impenetrable bureaucracies, incredible control over social institutions. In fact, we're talking about organisations precisely the same as the Registered Organisations Commission. It is a parody of the regulatory state controlling the union movement. And I, I, I'm, I'm carrying no water for the union movement by any means, but fundamentally, to Kurt's point, if we think that unions are... In, at their best, social organisations of people coming together mm. to collectively bargain on their own terms in a market environment, then why are we trying to regulate I, them in I this way? I think, Chris, you're talking about unions as they should be rather than as they are in a regulatory sense. Absolutely. Now, yeah. in a, in a, now I, it, there is nothing wrong with workers freely deciding to associate and collectively bargain. In a perfect world, that would be the system that we have. Um, however, uh, the Fair Work Act its latest incarnation of the Great Australian Tradition, basically going back to Federation of giving unions a privileged legal position in Australia. They are uh, consulted in relation to the 122 uh, modern, so-called modern awards that, in effect, create a cascading system of minimum wages. They are, default, they are the default bargaining agent by law in EBA negotiations, which is basically the only way to have an alternative to those awards. Uh, they have rivers of gold coming from compulsory superannuation and the industry super funds that have sprang up around that. So I, I, I get that they have to be curtailed in some way, but the best way to do that would be to remove the privileges yeah, yeah. that our law gives them. Well, what they're trying to do is solve the problem of bad regulation and a bad regu regulatory apparatus with another bad regulatory apparatus. That, that, that's absolutely right. And this is how we get the regulatory state. And looking yeah. through... So, for instance, um, the incredible... so. So there's there's such thing as protected and unprotected legal um, uh, sorry industrial action. So mm. you know there's a protected strike. And if you go on a protected strike or do other protected industrial action, you won't be fired. If you um, do unprotected, then then you can be fired. Now the idea of protected industrial action is precisely what you're talking about. Mm. It's a, Correct. It is a, um, a a privilege, and by law it protects you from from um, being sacked or or being otherwise penalised. But because we've built that structure. We've built this incredible governance framework, legal governance framework yeah. around when something should be considered protected industrial action, which involves you, uh, you as in a union movement. I'm talking to you, Gideon. You know, sure, I'd be a great Carter's, union leader. You'd be wonderful. Um, which involves Gideon going to the the government yeah. for permission to strike. To strike, yeah. which I just think is a, I mean, comically bad. Um, uh, and fundamentally in opposition to the very idea of industrial action, I would have thought. But, it defeats you know, the purpose, again, doesn't it? Again, uh, Gideon's the unionist, not me. But, um, but it, it's also just a parody of the over-regulated nature of yeah. our industrial relations system. Uh, only Australia could construct a system like that. It's only so in Australia. So, which, which brings and, and so we're all very proud. Which <laughs> brings us back to the, um, uh, the politics of this. I mean, 
I, I, I must admit I wasn't following it closely enough to have picked this, but um, in retrospect, which is always the best way to talk about politics... Yeah, no, no, that's know, the, it's I, the I safest way. I would have <laughs> picked it if I'd been paying attention. Um, th- why are we surprised that One Nation in the end did not endorse this? I mean, the phenomenon of the federal election just gone was what uh, the, the politics that we saw in Queensland, the revolt of the blue-collar vote... Um, we've got a populist right party. Populist right parties do not object to unions. They have no fundamental issue with unions. Uh, there are blue-collar voters who get around it. We saw a One Nation candidate in the uh, seat of Hunter uh, in the coal mining district um, outside Newcastle had a 20% uh, swing towards One Nation, you know, uh, basically a coal miner. Uh, central Queensland, it's, it's, it's clear now that... Um, uh, the unions played a very uh, subtle game with uh, Pauline Hanson and One Nation, uh, but they were probably pushing through an open door. That it wasn't like the leadership who you know flew up from Sydney or Melbourne. It was um, you know miners from Central Queensland who went to talk to Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think the government was um, thrown because they were hearing different things from Malcolm Roberts, who's more of a um, pro-business uh, One Nation um, member than Pauline Hanson, who they were hearing other things, but it appears that Pauline Hanson made the made the decision. But I've got this quote from, uh, precisely as you talk about a Queensland union leader talking about Pauline Hanson's um, uh, uh, Pauline Hanson's attitude in the Guardian. He said. She still has reservations about unions, but she recognises the majority do a good job the majority of the time. And they're coming to realise that the word union isn't that bad. I think part of the populist revolution that we've seen in um, states like Queensland and particularly in certain seats is hardly a free market revolution, but it's it's a bringing it back to the... um, uh, bringing it back to the land, bringing it back to the people type oh, I think it just highlights the point I made earlier that, that unions are not as deeply unpopular as the coalition seems to yeah. think they are. There are certain elements of what unions do that people don't like, but I think on a net basis people have this idea in their head. It's a bit like these straw polls about the ABC, Not the ratings are relatively low compared to the commercials, but when you ask people, do you trust the ABC as an important, uh, the results tend or do to... Or you, do you like the ABC? Yeah, To correct. which I've always thought, like, when you ask people whether they like television, they're going to say, yes, they like well, television. Well, well correct. Do, do you like, people see unions, you know, at least in theory, as a positive force. So this is why picking on them for a bit of bad behaviour is a net loss because at the end of the day, people, rightly or wrongly, feel happy that these institutions exist. And Kurt, it doesn't have a... Arguing about the unions doesn't give you a vision of a better world. It's not about, like, if we we crack down on the unions, then suddenly we'll be more prosperous or there'll be more employment. Yeah, well, this bill is is hardly a big picture um, bill. It's it's really distracting, I think, from... um, drastically needed uh, overhaul of the industrial relations system and a bigger picture of how that would actually help uh, benefit the labour force and, and improve those figures that Gideon was was outlining before. But I think, yeah, this is... Um, this. I see the purpose of a bill like this in terms of um, trying to hold unions account to account for, for breaking the law, but... Um, at, in the big picture thing is, is really missing from this and I think that it's not really something that the coalition can um, create a narrative around about how they're um, improving the economy through um, their IR reform. So I think that's what uh, remains to be done by the coalition government under under Morrison. Words still live yeah. by. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we are going to come back to um, uh, what does an actual reform agenda but uh, someone who was very focused on 
uh, a big picture, unfortunately it was the wrong big picture, uh, was Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, ten years ago he was very focused on a conference that was coming up in Copenhagen which was going to decide the future of the world's climate and stop <laughs> the sea levels rising and uh, save the glaciers and do all sorts of other things. This had some political repercussions, It had some, political, it had some political repercussions, that's right. So um, uh, Twitter and the press has been um, all aghast about it's the 10-year anniversary of the um, December 2009 um, leadership spill where Tony Abbott defeated Malcolm Turnbull by one vote in a spill for the Liberal uh, opposition leadership, uh, 42 to 41. Joe Hockey, if you'll remember, historians amongst us might remember that Joe Hockey was also a contender in that ballot but didn't make it through the second round. The issue, of course, as you say, was whether the opposition should support the Rudd government's missions trading scheme, um, which they were going to try to amend, but the nationals and many backbenchers in the Liberal Party were deeply opposed. Um, once this uh, spill occurred, the um, it really locked in, and I'll, I'll talk to Gideon in a moment about this, but it really locked the coalition in behind opposition to the carbon tax, to emissions trading schemes more generally, the moment um, Abbott became leader, the Liberal Party voted against the ETS um, very convincingly um, two days later. Um, I, I mean, I say it locked in, which it, it was it was very much up for grabs for mm. a long time. And it wasn't – I mean, it's not just that Malcolm Turnbull only won by one, one vote. It's also – John Howard had announced an emissions trading yep. scheme in the 2007 – election. Um, Gideon, you had a piece in The Spectator, which is really the piece you were born to write, <laughs> I feel. Um, uh, we hope you got it out of your system, but you wrote uh, a piece in The spec. We'll find out in a sec. I want to be a historian <laughs> about that very, very one event. All right. So, yes. And about the Turnbull government. <laughs> exactly. You're a historian who specialises in a single day. Yeah. Um, Gideon wrote a piece in The Spectator called Haunted by the Miserable Ghost. What's the what's the, what's the the vibe of that, that Well, well firstly, I, I, didn't, I didn't choose the title, although it's a very apt one. But look, the, it, it, it's, it's something I wanted to write because it's it's an, a political event that is actually very underrated in its significance. And that was the day on 2009, as you said, in which Tony Abbott defeated Malcolm Turnbull by a single vote over a the issue of emissions trading. Now, before that, it's easy to forget, um, before that point, it was almost unthinkable that the coalition would not have some sort of emissions policy, but more than that, not just an emissions policy, but a carbon trading policy of some kind. I mean, that, 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 was the, that was the Overton window at the time. And I remember, you know, at the time I was a kid, I was at university, I was working in a politician's office part-time, and the number of emails and letters that were received by ordinary grassroots salt-of-the-earth people saying, this is a terrible, terrible idea, was absolutely overwhelming. And I think Tony Abbott saw that, and I think he, he saw the deep difficulty with what the emissions trading scheme would have done economically, what it would have done to uh, the, the very fabric of our country. And, you know, the lefties on Twitter are, you know, are mourning it as the start of the climate wars, but it really did was the start of that product differentiation. And as soon as Tony Abbott said, all, he, all it took to reverse the whole conversation about, you know, carbon emissions and carbon trading and carbon farming and carbon accounting and all this useless stream of detail uh, that... that was the carbon de climate debate accepting emissions trading as a fait accompli in itself, all it took to knock that over 
was a very simple message, that Kevin Rudd's ETS was nothing more and nothing less than a great big new tax on everything. And the Liberal Party, importantly, got an enormous bounce out of that. The polling recovered almost overnight. Kevin Rudd, at the time, was the most popular Prime Minister the country had ever known, at least on paper. Within six months, he was gone. Julia Gillard was demolished six months after that. And then three years later, um, Tony Abbott finished off the job in an emphatic victory, all because people reject uh, green uh, uh, carbon trading and, and, and green hysteria and everything else. In fact, they've rejected every economic opportunity in the final uh, electoral opportunity. And the final point I would make is that it was the first defeat of Turnbullism. Uh, Turnbullism being Chamber of Commerce economic liberalism wrapped up in green chicanery and innovation claptrap. And this is what really annoys me. Final point. Sorry. <laughs> got me going now. This will be the first three hour looking forward this is podcast. The, the final point this is the third th- final point. But it, expires, <laughs> it, it exposes the, the utter vacuousness of this false dichotomy between Turnbull small liberals and conservatives. There is nothing about what Turnbull ever put forward that in any way would have satisfied genuine economic liberals. And there is nothing socially conservative about opposing an emissions trading scheme. Kurt, do you share Gideon's (gasps) uh, passion, if nothing else? Yeah, I think... uh, It's half a white Valium after that. (laughs) I think he's um, spot on. And I think that the tragedy is that um, the Liberal Party went back to to Turnbull and didn't learn the lessons from from that incident. And I think... um, at the time, as you as you rightly um, bring up, the, the establishment was, was very much, you know, the Overton window was not, you know, allowing for any movement on that. And I think that at the time, the, the pressure to implement um, more um, climate change policies was, was, was really um, increasing at an alarming rate. And I think it was really abated by, um, globally, by uh, the GFC, which I think sort mm-hmm. of... Um, took that uh, agenda back a little bit. Um, but I think that um, the important lesson here is that um, there is a wide um, electro- electorate um, desire for, you know, to, to stop these these infringements and these um, big new taxes. And I mm. think that the Liberal Party, unfortunately, hasn't really uh, learned the lessons from from their electoral success in, in 2013 and, mm. um, and need to really get back to that. Um, a, a positive move, obviously, um, with Morrison um, taking over from Turnbull. But... Um, again, we, we haven't really seen any um, unwinding of all of the subsidies and like the, um, mm. the renewable um, subsidies. No, but, the, but, the but by design, sort of thing, so. because, because the moment Tony Abbott became leader, he had to buy off or he thought he had to buy off many of the pro-Turnbull people, which is why he announced direct action. Mm. Um, and direct action has a – there's a lot to say about direct action if we all think back to then. What we have now is sort of the air of direct action really. But mm. but the direct action was this incredibly complex regulatory subsidisation system that was meant to do precisely what the carbon mm. tax did. And so I share Gideon's analysis of the politics there, but policy by policy, uh, the, the change was not so – uh, I, don't, I, I don't think no, you can compare. No, no, no. no. Uh, some of that's happened later. It's been snuck back in later. They, I mean, well, the, 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 the red might have opened the door. The, the red is a long. The red term, is a John long, Howard yeah. creation. Red, that red was is a long. By red is a long-standing policy, but but the um, direct action. You know, I don't think I lo- love it. I don't think it's particularly necessary. But that that uh, was you know basically planting a few trees and paying a few yeah. polluters it, not to pollute. It, that was it's far different from ha- forcing companies to report their emissions yeah. to buy. Well, no, they still, they still have to. 
That's oh, sorry. <laughs> the, the, they that wasn't report. repealed. Again, not, not as a result of an Abbott policy, but an existing one, but to have to uh, buy credits for their emissions, to have to audit their emissions, to have to, uh, you know, engage in these extremely complex uh, trading okay. systems to offset them. No, but here we go again. You see, this, this is... This is exactly what you identified in your piece, and it mm. really is a ripper, and it'll be in the show notes. It reminded me of um, – this is high praise indeed – it reminded me of Road to Serfdom. <laughs> oh, wow. Because wow. What, what you were pointing out is that this is what happens, and this is the, the, uh, how uh, experts and elites take over uh, the attention of government. Mm. Um, because when, this, when we're going off to Copenhagen, uh, supposedly uh, with promises to implement this emissions trading scheme – uh, that was going to be a bipartisan policy. All the focus is then on the implementation, mm. and it gets more and more technical and more and more detailed. And I was actually working in this this field at the time, and even Tim Wilson, who was at the AB, IPA at the time, I think didn't didn't he go off and do like a masters in carbon accounting? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, you talk about I you wonder you, you wonder <laughs> you, you wonder why the economy is, is going downhill when all the resources that could actually go into wealth creation are instead going into learning about the, the finer points of carbon accounting. And and, and that's where it was. Like, is it better to plant trees or are we going to have to tax cows for the methane? Or, mm. you know, it's all and, – and all this bitty stuff. You mm. know, I, I nearly got a job as someone who, whose job was to report on carbon emissions. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I'd be – To be I, a fly on the wall for that. I'd be out of my mind on OxyContin by now. It's the only way I would have got through the day. <laughs> um, but but you reminded me that that was the slippery slope. Yeah. And, and all at once uh, Abbott – pull back and suddenly all those people go away. No one cares about them anymore. I don't care that you're an expert in carbon accounting. Yeah. Just for God's sake, get out of our road while we actually build some wealth. So mm. I think that's that's the real lesson a that as I take talk, out I'm, of it. I'm desperately trying to pull up a story that um, one of my favourite memories of uh, Tim actually working at the IPA, he, he went to Copenhagen, he um, did the Copenhagen conference, and when he was there he found the list of delegates um, from the different countries and Australia had sent by far the most, <laughs> not just relative to population size, but something like 150 Australian public <laughs> servants. Yeah. I'm desperately trying to find it, so if I do find it, we'll put and, it up. And that was, the, that was the craziness of the time. Again, to make the point, the, the 2000s were really, you know, this, this craziness of, it was almost like the Y2K debate, but there were, there were law firms Australian law firm sending people to Copenhagen for no good reason, just because they wanted a piece of this action. It, it was a very, very sub-rational uh, zeitgeist. Well, well, they were focused on the bottom line. They would have done very well out of it. They certainly would have. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, uh, but we, we can talk about the importance of 2009, but the carbon tax was passed. I mean, they, we did get a carbon tax in 2011. Yeah. And so one of the things that – on the left you often hear that um, you can't do reform anymore. Um, uh, and the the iconic model is the carbon tax. You know, we we needed to do major structural reform to our economy, and but but look what happened. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Tony Abbott rolled Malcolm Turnbull, and I've always thought that was bizarre because yes, two but two years later you got precisely the structural reform you're so mm. desperate for. So in a, and and yes, it was repealed, but in a funny way, it shows the. Um, the, that we still have some sort of dynamic public policy system that you can have two sides of politics fundamentally disagree about a policy and implement their preferred positions. If only they'd use those powers for good. Yeah. yeah. The, well, the, that'll never happen. Well, what, what the Abbott ascendancy, though, did was make it – well, first of all, to offer the, offer the choice. Now, uh, we now Tony Abbott did repeal the carbon tax and it was, uh, you know, the, one of the first things he did. I don't think – 
even a Tony Abbott would have been able to repeal a bipartisan emissions trading scheme that had been in for longer than that. Once the policy in, is in for a while, you, it's, yeah. it's well, difficult that's, to That's the path to I've now been retailing the, um, uh, the UK, of course. I mean, they have a bipartisan now that the entire economy is going to have net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah. I mean, this is insane. Mm. And um, you know when they've when they're uh, shut down, or you know when nuclear is on the nose, and all you know there's there's I think they're allowed to build one hugely expensive reactor, and that's a bit that's about it. But the conservatives have locked in behind it. Yeah. So so there's bipartisan you know insane emissions policies. It, it becomes a sacred cow you can't slaughter, and that's what it would have done if if it had passed. And Rudd would have won the subsequent election as well, and had another term to bed it down. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a game changer. So let's get back to the things that actually are important, unlike carbon accounting, which is uh, the future of the Australian economy. Uh, there there are some uh, some worrying signs, uh, some flatness out there, and uh, but most of the uh, the coverage uh, that's coming out of Canberra and the national media is around. Does this mean we need stimulus? And the arguments around, you know, is it fiscal or monetary stimulus? Yeah, look, and, and Scott, on the face of it, there's some pretty concerning signs just from the RBA. So um, right now, as, as many listeners will know, the official cash rate is at 0.75%, which is significantly lower than it ever was during the GFC. Um, the RBA, for the last multiple years, has consistently or nearly consistently failed to hit its inflation target. The RBA has an inflation target of 2 to 3% um, uh, per year. It has hit that in precisely two of the, la uh, two of the last 12 quarters, I think. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, on, on the face of it, this is pretty bad. We have a RBA that's designed to hit a inflation target. We have incredibly low cash rates. Um, and yeah, but, but, and everybody's failing to do their job. Uh, so, but Kurt, you've been looking into this quite deeply. Is this is this a problem? Should be we be concerned? Should we be thinking about fiscal policy changes, monetary policy changes? Uh, how do you how do you think through these issues? Well, I think there's uh, a lot um, going on here. So, um, the last seven years, the the cash rate has been at record or equal to record lows. Um, so um, that can be uh, that's that's easy monetary policy. That's um, stimulating monetary policy that we've had for the last seven years, and that's what has led to our current predicament. Um, and now we have calls for um, for more easy monetary policy through quantitative easing, and even uh, suggestions that we should implement negative interest rates. Um, what is a negative interest rate, by the way? So a negative interest rate would be um, just bear with us while we do a little <laughs> bit of an economics tutorial. Yeah, <laughs> I, I probably should have looked this up before I. Um, Josh to do a little animation and we'll add, <laughs> it, to, add it to the YouTube video. So, so fundamentally would be reversing the relationship between creditor and um, debtor yeah. in that you'd be actually be paid to take a loan. That's if that's if it flowed through. Yeah, that's to, what I thought it was. How yeah. does that, so yeah. a negative interest rate, you, uh, the bank store money with the RBA and usually they pay an interest rate on that. <laughs> what if instead they tax them? And so, of course, the banks are then going to want to spend their reserves. So the idea is the banks are going to want oh, to okay. pour out their money into the economy. So, you know, um, and one of the interesting things that's going on right now is that um, this works well if every all your money is controlled by the government. So if all the money is digital, it works very poorly if you can take cash mm. and put it under your 
um, uh, uh, put it under your bed. So this is one of the reasons they want to crack down on cash. Like yeah. 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 Um, it's not. A, it's not just. It's a, it's a funny coincidence that we have um, pushes uh, by the government to outlaw transactions above ten thousand yeah, dollars. While I mean, we have uh, probably negative nothing interest to do with it. Rates. Uh, I mean, but but so uh, I mean, negative interest rates are one of them, and and um, Philip Lowe is uh, the um, RBA chief has been um, a little bit dismissive about that, but he's been a bit more low, open low to quantitative. Easing. Yeah, so he's um, outlined uh, just recently about um, quantitative easing that uh, it would be a consideration once um, they've lowered to 0.25%. So at the current rate, that's just, that's just two further cuts, which um, is widely so predicted. by the end of next year. It's widely predicted by the end of next year. So yeah. if, um, if the, we have those two extra cuts and there's no inflation that's um, jumping into that 2 to 3% um, target, then... The, the logical next step is for the RBA to engage in further ramping up of their easy monetary mm. policy through quantitative easing. So this then brings back to the question of um, the legitimacy of that of that inflation target. Because if we maintain that inflation target... Because we, we need to keep... Uh, the, the theory is that we need to keep cutting the cash rate yeah. in order to boost inflation to hit the target. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so if we um, are undershooting the, the target, which the Australian economy is, it's... Um, it's, it's for, I think for the last five years undershot the two to three percent um, target. That means that we need to keep in, engaging in easier monetary policy in order to hit that. So I think that the I think that the easy monetary policy is a bad thing, and it's being encouraged by a target that we're not meeting. So in order to um, avoid uh, employing harmful monetary policy, we need to get rid of the, the inflation target. Um, I think Chris disagrees. No, with no, I, I want to hear Scott's view because I, I want to respond to that. Yeah, well, uh, I echo Kurt's position and, and merely point out that uh, it does not it did not come down with Moses from, from Mount Sinai. It, it's, uh, it was the... Oh, tar- my, the, the, my history is completely wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry, Chris. Uh, the, it was contained originally in uh, a joint statement from uh, the then Treasurer Peter Costello and the incoming Governor of the Reserve Bank, Ian McFarlane, in 1996. To be honest, is as close to coming down from Moses as, as Australian <laughs> politics Co- gets, but sure. Costello yeah. has made it very clear subsequently... God was the first central banker. <laughs> that when they, when they did this, um, uh, they were talking about getting inflation down. The, you know, the, there was no thought that this would ever become a flaw on inflation. We had, you know, double-digit, you know, a history of double-digit inflation. Uh, economic theory was full of talk about expectations and how you actually break uh, inflationary expectations. It was all about, and that's partly why they issued this statement. Oh, here's what I prepared which earlier. You, yep, which you have in your physical hands. Yeah, if you're listening to this on a podcast, by the way, not only am I holding up this piece of paper, you can see it on YouTube if you want to have a... Yep. Uh, have a look. Props work brilliantly on uh, podcast. Well yep. done, Scott. Thank you. And um, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Costello said, there's no way that he was thinking of this being a flaw. So uh, if all, it is time for Josh Frydenberg and the current governor to say jointly in an updated statement um, that we are dispensing with this 2 to 3% target and formulating it so other way, in, in some other way that's much more realistic. All right, here's my concern. So um, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Obviously, it, it, there's nothing natural about a 2 to 3% inflation target. But the reason that we have targets is so that the RBA has to consistently hit them. And if we decide that the 2 to 3% target is now, oh, yeah, well, the next treasurer can change it to a 1% target, then we don't have targets. Now, the, uh, uh, that, is, that will be catastrophic 
for um, the stability of the economy and for the predictability of the economy. So I think it, say it's, it's really the same argument that we've been having with the union bill. We have to figure out why the economy is sluggish and work on that first. But why not? Why have a target of 2 to 3%? Why not a target of zero? I know yeah, there yeah, are no, people I, arguing deflation is equally I'm, bad. I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm actually quite supportive. If, if the economy does not support inflation, we mm. should be have a monetary policy of deflation. But I'm, if we have a holus bolus, complete rethink of how we arrange monetary policy in Australia, um, then I'm all for resetting it to zero or 30 or whatever it is that we decide, not mm. 30 hopefully, but, but um, whatever it is that we decide. But the idea that the treasurer looks at the, hears from the RBA that they have failed consistently to hit the thing that is supposed to be their rule, their sole purpose for existing in this system, and then go, oh, that's fine, we'll just we'll just yeah. lower the target for yeah. you. But the, cool. but the logic behind lowering the target isn't that because they've missed the target and therefore we're going to let them off um, and lower it. It's that by aiming for the 2 to 3% um, um, inflation, that's actually causing um, stupid monetary policy. Yeah, so no, no, but the monetary, but but those those two things are connected. It's it's stupid monetary policy. I I agree with that. But it's stupid monetary policy caused by failures of productivity. It's caused by um, deep problems in the economy itself. And and there's there's a school of thought in Canberra and in Sydney that we need to focus on the RBA and the most important thing is the cash rate. Um, when fundamentally the problem here is that we don't have the strong economy we want. I think that raises a really, really good point and I am no expert on monetary policy by any stretch, but what I will say is as a macro political... Do you, do you own a house? That's the real question. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I do, but the, the, the point is that... <laughs> Just um, to get our biases out of the right. <laughs> I um, want it to go really low, yeah. <laughs> to be clear. This... Fixation on the RBA shows how depressingly dominant demand-side economics has become over the, la over the last 10 years, if that. Um, there are very few people, if any, that are calling for supply-side reform to fix the economy the, the, uh, to, and to get the economy uh, moving. The, the remedies that are touted are almost always demand-side, whether it be quantitative easing and lowering interest rates and so on, paying public servants more is an idea that's floated, all this... <laughs> This, these perennial calls for infrastructure. Now, I have nothing against, and we should all support genuine productivity-enhancing infrastructure that can't be provided for by the private sector. That's fine. But building stuff we may very well not need as a means to stimulate the economy, by that logic, you may as well pay half a million people to dig a big hole, another half million to fill it in again. Uh, but this is the level of sophistication of economic debate in Australia, and we are the much poorer for it. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I was going to take this opportunity because we, we love uh, listener feedback here. And uh, uh, we had uh, we were contacted by Richard, who is a genuine and very successful businessman um, who was picking up on an earlier discussion about this and, and uh, uh, like you made the point that we're actually focusing on the wrong things uh, because he, we've got to get the focus back on a wealth creation as, mm. as he pointed out and um, now there's lots of things which supposedly add value but they're destroying wealth and if I can get some indulgence from my co-host to read as, out. As long as you say 
Long time listener, first time writer. <laughs> <laughs> Long term listener, first time writer. Thank you, thank you Richard. Um, so he just said, um, amongst other things, he was he's drawing the contrast with America. He said, Trump is building industry that not only adds value but also creates wealth. Whereas in Australia, we are stopping agriculture, stopping new mines, not allowing development, and borrowing money to build football stadiums, tunnels, roads, and train lines. None of which create wealth. Right on. Um, uh, doesn't doesn't matter. You know, commuting times don't matter if the job actually doesn't add productivity that's a paraphrase trump is building wealth creating industries and bring bringing some back on shore australia is destroying its industries that create wealth these are simple ideas but obviously need to be discussed because most australians just do not understand right yeah that's right i mean the, the the fundamental problem that we have and we have it on this podcast and we raise it all the time but the media has it shockingly that we dance around the basic problem that the economy is not growing as it should be as a economy with the education natural resources human capital should be able to grow and it's not growing at that rate because we have stopped it from growing correct well like we've made policy decisions to say no 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 we'd rather other things mm. and then we wonder why it's not growing yeah well, yeah. It's, well, well that, that's just, it's a, a point to make i think the the economic reform agenda has basically stalled since john howard's in the lodge I mean, how long ago was that? Well, and well, even the notion of an economic is reform... That a, is that a rhetorical question? Not 12 years, but maybe, counting. Maybe we even should jettison the notion of an economic reform agenda because that, that sounds, um, uh, with the greatest of respect, because it sounds very wonky and it, come, and it brings yeah. to mind... I mean, this is... Uh, Bill Shorten had an economic reform agenda. Mm. It would have would have driven the economy further into this regulatory morass, but, you know, it was presented but, as an economic reform but agenda. What we're actually talking about is getting back to the fundamentals of how is wealth created. Sure, but I think that's just because economics has been firstly co-opted and hijacked by the left and secondly bastardised. You can it, see that in the fact that we are talking about tax cuts as handouts and tax increases as savings. I mean, the left have been very good at... Um, at contorting economics to suit basically their social agenda. I think the other issue, and this comes back to what um, Richard uh, brought up, is just the way we measure economic success as well. We're just trying to like um, trying to manipulate all these aggregate statistics, yeah. like the price yep. level, which is an arbitrarily determined um, measure of what, what counts as uh, in this basket of goods and we're going to measure um, if the price of that goes up or down. And then GDP, which is hugely um, driven by monetary policy, um, which doesn't necessarily result in actual improvements in material well-being, uh, and 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 driven by government spending, which you know we're just calling all government spending and private sector, private sector um, that actually adds value for people, and we're just equating that with government spending, wasteful government spending on 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 pink bats and things like that, mm. and, and and saying it's all the same thing, and then saying okay the economy grew by you know one percent or something like. That doesn't actually tell you about anything real. Yeah, yeah the map is not the territory. These these, yeah. these aggregate statistics were only created off the back of Keynesian economics. Pardon my yeah. ignorance, but are there any indexes that exclude government spending and government wealth wealth creation? No, you can subtract. You can subtract that out of various indexes. Yeah. But, um, but look, any well, it, it, to see what it, the, the point is that the, the, the map is not the territory, but you do need the map. So, so we need a collection of these sorts of measures and we need to read them with intelligence. But the problem That's is, the is what's happening if, even with like the inflation target is there's nothing that this whole thing about, you know, it's two to three bracket didn't come down from, from Mount Sinai. Moses' inflation target, yep. Um, it's, um, in fact, 
uh, from Mount Sinai, we had like sound money, you know. Um, <laughs> Very good. Not, not inflationist uh, central banking. Um, but the thing is that there's nothing that it says that inflation is consistent with, with sound economic growth. You can have inflation that is bad. You have like the stagflation of um, mm. high unemployment and high inflation. In a, if we have a stable money system, if you have goods in the economy growing at a faster rate than, than the money supply, you actually have deflation. So a lot of this is actually driven by a fear of deflation, which is based on um, our monetary system, which is, I think, inconsistent with, with economic growth. And yeah. I think that that um, changes the, the, the focus of the economic debate towards these aggregate statistics and, and trying to um, you know, insert you know, monetary policy to, to, to fix these aggregates instead of looking at fundamental things about how wealth is created. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's right. I mean, what it is is basically the planner's fallacy. With the, mm. So we've decided that we govern the economy's money. So therefore, we've got to figure out ways, like how, how would we know whether to print more money or to, to, to not? And, and so we have to pick on these, these aggregate statistics because how else would we do it? Unless you had a market-based system, which obviously Kurt is talking about, which is a sound money system or a free banking system or some variation. Or, you know, a crypto economy, just raising it. Um, blockchain, yeah. blockchain. Heaven forbid. <laughs> um, we might leave that there. And I think there's, there's much to build on uh, next year. And uh, I also think of, um, yes, no, one's a, a, no one complains when the price of their flat screen television goes down, um, even while it, just about everything that's regulated, the cost of it goes up. Yep. Um, we'll leave that there. It is time for our Books and Culture segment where we share what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Um, who would like to start us off? Well, I'll start because I usually volunteer. Thank you. And I wouldn't want to break that. Um, so so it's a when I say who would like to start us off, Because you look yeah. immediately at me. So, yeah, um, uh, so I am reading, I haven't finished embarrassingly um, for this podcast, a book called Music, A Subversive History by Ted Gioia. Um He is a um, music critic. Um, and jazz musician, in fact, and I came across this book because I was listening to the Conversations with Tyler Cowan podcast and he had him on and um, I thought that sounded fantastic. Um, there's a lot to this book. It's obviously, I mean, as the subtitle says, it's a history of subversive music or the importance of subversion in music, in popular music, in popular culture. But what I've drawn out of it is that there's really two sorts of music. Um, in in culture and in even in politics, there's sort of the official music, and the official music, as he describes it, historically tends to be quite formal. Um, it tend it can often be quite military. It can be strictly regulated from a musical sense, in mm -hmm. that it's very mathematical. Um, uh, the the um, chords and the um, uh, scales are very rigidly defined, and and it can be often very propagandistic. So it um, often will tell a story about. Um, great men, great leaders, great states, that sort of thing. And he contrasts this, this is his argument, and he contrasts this with what he describes as sort of popular music or subversive music, which can um, has a totally different connotations. So um, historically it's had connotations of magic, it's had connotations of sort of trance-like states when you listen to it. Um, it's sexual, it's violent, it, and mm. it's non-official religion. Um, and the way he uh, – th this sounds a bit high concept, to be honest, and, and I think if I'd heard um, me describe it, I'd be like, are you sure? Um, but it, it's actually quite convincing when you read it, and it drew out for me the relationship, an unexpected relationship, between state authority and 
oppositional subversive musical systems, not in a 1960s Bob Dylan sense, mm. but in a um, sometimes mu music is so fundamental to our culture that music that, um, uh, that that challenging music or popular music can undermine state hierarchy. And I'll, I'll give a quote because he actually draws this all the way back to Plato. So if you know much about Plato, you know that Plato was opposed to music, but that's not quite it. Plato was opposed to some sort of music. So I'm going to quote um, uh, the book here. In Plato, he writes, we repeatedly encounter two, uh, encounter two different types of music. One music is essential to a well-ordered society, according to Plato, but the other is risky and must be dealt with cautiously or even prohibited. Plato would have understood well the concept of subversive music. He constantly warns against it, quoting from Plato, beware of changing to a new form of music since it threatens the whole system. So there... And what I'm taking out of this book is an incredible relationship between power, anti-authoritarianism through and anti-authoritarianism through music. That makes sense because I think every new wave of music has created a moral panic, whether it be jazz, uh, the devil's music, or whatever in the 20s when it emerged. Whether it be you know fast forwarding to the Tipper Gore inspired hysteria over rap music, but I think that can be broadened. I think all art can probably be boxed into you know official. And subversive. I mean, look at poetry. The, the 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 great schism that was caused when poetry moved away from you know sonnets and other very structured uh, ways of writing to free verse and, and everything else. You know, whole books, whole novels have been banned for obscenity. You know, the ones that we now consider classics, like Catcher in the Rye, uh, Tropic of Cancer, and so on. So I think it's a fine thesis, but I suppose it can be broadened out to yeah, no, it, no, forms it, of it, it can. And and so that that process. It, I mean, jazz obviously was very um, viewed as subversive, but of course, jazz is now like the most bourgeois yeah. style music, and, and it's structured and, too. And and so one of the examples that he uses, which is really powerful, is N.W.A. the rap group N.W.A. When N.W.A. released its albums in the 1980s and 1990s, they were investigated by the FBI. There was an active FBI investigation. Mm. Now N.W.A. is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so there's obviously in modern states like to take the subversion and sort of tame it and and own it but what he's talking what about what do you mean by modern states though um so 20th century states i think or, or 20th what, century in what sense does the state okay the economy in the i'm embarrassed i've only read half the book all right okay so I don't he will explain yeah. <laughs> i guess there i guess there is a state element um because the, the state does fund a lot of art forms well, that no, it previously wouldn't have no no there's a reason why abc jazz is now probably broadcasting station <laughs> and no seriously to dwell, to dwell you, slightly on You've finally on actually come up with a reason why there is an ABC jazz station. I don't know. Give the ABC call because they're also a, looking for a reason for that. There is a very, very <laughs> important reason because I personally enjoy listening to it and I've paid for it, so I might as well enjoy yeah, it. If only there was jazz music on the we internet. We should privatise um, ABC except for ABC jazz. <laughs> but I, I, just to slightly extend that point, so in, in the first half of the book, which I've read, um, it, he makes the point that Music was, until very recently, a communal activity. Mm. And it's a communal activity that would involve beats and drums and chanting and all that sort of thing. And early states and early centres of power saw that communal um, organisation as a threat to its state power. It tried to co-opt it with military music and, and the, the, the um, drum beats that that involved. But it, it did see the coordination of free people coming together freely to to make music as a as an interesting threat to its but, power. But surely like the the process where the subversive music becomes like you know more mainstream, that's not driven necessarily by by states. And 
and I, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't. I've read um, Goya's uh, his uh, history of jazz. Oh, okay, I haven't, cool. haven't, re- haven't read this, but um, how You're a jazz man, Kurt. Yes, I am. I yeah. never knew that. Um, oh. but I think um, that um, <laughs> no, but like if you it's have cate- categories <laughs> of of subversive music, how does it then become like mainstream if none of those things are, are changing? If you look at, I think an interesting example is um, from jazz history is the bebop. Um, yeah, yeah. rising in, in the 1940s. And I think is the, the main thing why it seems subversive is because people didn't understand it. But then, you know, they, th- they thought it was chaotic. But mm. actually, it's ex- extremely mathematical, extremely um, a lot of structure. You could argue that it's, it's got higher structures than, mm. than the swing music that preceded it. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure about how, how that works in that, that thesis. No, yeah, no, Chris, because no. he's only written half of And it'll be my culture pick next week. Um, Gioia Ge- actually really hates the mathematical side and that's the overwhel- That's what he dislikes about modern music. That's what he dislikes about the auto-tune. It takes the bending of notes that um, is part of that trance-like state. And Anyway, anyway, that's the music segment for today. Oh, um, champion. Ironic, <laughs> ironic because trance music is entirely electronic, so... Oh, to look, look oh, rhythm, full of ironies. <laughs> um, <that>. Kurt, <laughs> yeah, so you've been reading something even more serious. Yeah, so my book um, is a new book from Lou Rockwell, uh, who uh, writes at lourockwell.com, and he's also the founder and, and chairman of the Mises Institute. Uh, this book is called Against the Left, A Rothbardian Libertarianism. Um, it's a short book. Uh, he draws a lot from, from Rothbard and Mises as as Rockwell tends to do. Um, and so the main chapters he talks about um, the family, civil rights, immigration, environmentalism and egalitarianism as the main um, organising thing behind a lot of the things um, of the left. Um, and I think for me, like it's a short book, but I think one of the interesting discussions is um, about the institution of the family and how egalitarianism, when consistently applied, really um, attacks that. And he, mm. and he brings up um, a debate between Robert Nisbet and John Rawls, the, the 20, both 20th century philosophers, on this issue where Nisbet um, challenges Rawls, you know, how, does, how is the family consistent with a commitment to um, you know, a radical egalitarianism? And, and Rawls' response is that basically it is inconsistent with with egalitarianism, um, and he sort of sort of hedges, um, saying so? that it's not well because the family, yeah. the, fa- the institution of the family is a major driver of inequality in opportunity. So, um, you know, your parents play a huge role uh. in, in creating an inequality of opportunity. So, uh, this is a huge engine. It's at the center of you know, the reality that you know people are unequal mm. yeah um, uh, both what, innate yeah. and what a um, perverse, a, a big, what a perverse thing, but a big, a big thing historically about the family and the state is that the family was the private community that state that the state could never figure yeah. out how to penetrate well, the, well your yeah. mate your mate plato he tried he wanted my, to get my, my mate, mate plato. children would be raised um, in common and, and Here so we are, still talking so, about so, it. so again rich in ironies there's but the the family is a breaking down family structure was a way that the state could then see into this, that small community. Because think about what, what a, a family is not just, you know, a set of relationships. They live together. Yeah. Um, they have, a, you know, hopefully they have a house. And getting in the house from the state's perspective is the way to control but the You're population. talking about a different yeah. phenomenon though, Chris. You're talking about um, the family as a competing source of power 
vis-a-vis the state, whereas you're talking about something completely perverse, which is because good parenting can give children an advantage in life and therefore, you know, shoot them up the economic ladder, um, we should just abolish parenting because well, it's, yeah, because well, it's disincentivize good parents. Uh, <laughs> can, can, we, can we get sorry? Can we go back to Nisbet versus Rawls? So what was who won? Who won that smackdown? Well, no I think Nisbet is, Nisbet is is correct. Um, Science advances funeral by funeral, uh, Scott, as you know. And Nisbet actually, he actually, um, as, as Rockwell quotes him, um, talks about this this line from Plato through to like Rousseau and 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 that left wing view of egalitarianism versus an anti anti family view versus a, a view through Aristotle going through to Burke and, and Tocqueville. Um, and saying that, you know, Rawls is very much... If you actually consistently apply Rawls' philosophy, it is anti-family, and Rawls himself even acknowledges this. Um, and I think it's, it's, it is for that reason that, you know, parents create unequal opportunity. But it is also for um, the reason that it is a, um, a rival power structure mm. to the state. And you treat treating... Families, uh, within families, you treat family members differently to, to other people in society, and mm. that's, that's unequal. That's, that involves um, discrimination, mm. which is another um, part of, of Rockwell's book. Um, the, the other, and the interesting thing I think he, he brings up is that um, for the state, egalitarianism and, and environmentalism, as we touched on before, is a great instrument for the state to have these unachievable goals that... <laughs> that just gives more and more power to the state, gives more justification for the state to, mm. to intervene and increase its power. Mm. Um, Environmentalism, so like the 2 to 3% inflation rate, is a target, yeah. not, a, not a goal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, that's, that's an interesting point. And the other, the other thing that he talks about is um, being against left libertarianism. So this, this idea that um, libertarians should also have a commitment to egalitarianism um, to all these extra things beyond um, the use of violence in society. And mm. I think that's an interesting uh, point that he ri- raises is that um, the error of, of how classical liberalism uh, degenerated into modern liberalism mm. was basically because of this embracement, this expansion of what liberalism is mm. to uh, embrace a lot of these left-wing ideas of equality. No, and I, I think Like saying you're a smaller liberal and that means we should support a carbon tax. Yeah, well, I think that's that's, that's a, a long way the down the, the road of de- uh, degradation. <laughs> no, no, it sounds like a very useful... And, and this is meant to be like an int- introductory or sort of, you know, general educa- education primer almost. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short book. It's, yeah. it's very readable and it's um, fairly, fairly introductory, so it that's doesn't what, assume a lot. Then, then we, we shall recommend it. Um, I'm going to talk about a book that's not very short, actually, <laughs> which is uh, the remarkable Clive James book. Uh, who, uh, of course, uh, died only very recently. The great man uh, did an amazing range of things uh, on television. He wrote something for the IPA in Climate Change the Facts 2017, a terrific essay called Mass Death Dies Hard, um, and we've, we've talked about that and paid tribute to that. I also wanted just to talk today about uh, a book he wrote called Cultural Amnesia, Notes in the Margin of My Time, which is a series of essays, it's nearly 900 pages, but on various writers and thinkers that he came across. And I think this says a lot about uh, Clive James and uh, the the breadth of his reading. Um, it's actually raised, I think, arranged because he couldn't think of any other way to do it in alphabetical order. So, <laughs> so if, you look at, if you look at K, he's got uh, Kafka, Keats, 
Kolakowski, who is a historian of communism, Alexandra Kolontai, never heard of, Hida Margolius Cavalli, sounds Hungarian but never heard of, Karl Kraus, who I think was a Viennese uh, satirist. And <clears throat> so one of the things that, you know, just uh, so grateful for everything Clive James contributed to culture, but what I love is he's a suburban boy, uh, manages to find his way to university uh, and then and then to Cambridge later. And it's like, why can't this kid from Cogra be someone who reads all of this? Why, why can't he immerse himself in, you know, the, the, the glories of, you know, Viennese culture, you know, before and after World War I? Um, he takes it very, very seriously. Uh, as we all know, he's a brilliant writer. Um, he's very interested in that point of engagement where writers meet culture, meet, meet politics, meet society. Um, so I couldn't possibly summarise what he's doing here, um, but you do enjoy reading the various sections because it's so well written. But I think it's 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 a, the ambition of it as, mm. as much as anything. And um, uh, if if one thing does come through, it is that that tremendous sadness for the you know middle uh, middle European uh, culture of you know which sort of you know, went went into the concentration camps in the 1930s thanks to the Nazis. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the loss of Vienna, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah which which will never get back. And, you know, people see e- echoes of it now. You know, Stefan Zweig is, is, is having a bit of a renaissance because people are saying, what did it feel like to, to watch your culture disintegrating around you? Um, I hope those parallels aren't correct. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Vale Clive James, just one of many terrific books that he wrote. And it is, of course, a series of uh, five-page essays, so uh, a good one to dip in and out it, of. It is an extraordinary book, and I remember consuming it avidly when it was first released. And it makes you want to buy more books, which is, of course, um, catastrophic. But um, <laughs> uh, doesn't help. Uh, but one of the frustrations is that the books that he wants you to read very few of them have been translated into English. Yeah. It's like, you should definitely read this German book and this French book. And um, uh, you're like, Gross, yeah, I, I definitely should. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, he, and and he, he taught himself to read in many languages. And he kills you and you feel very jealous and um, very impressed. Yep. Some of us have jobs. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, you may, uh, regular listeners of this podcast. Sorry, that was just a little picture of Scott's internal life. <laughs> yes. Well. Too many books, not enough time. <laughs> oh, story of all our lives, I think, especially in Sorry, this line of work. Um, no, I read, uh, well, you, regular viewers and listeners of this podcast may remember that Evan Mulholland's pick earlier in the year was a show called The Loudest Voice, which was a, you know, show uh, by. Uh, not sure who produced it, but uh, it was on Stan, about Roger Ailes, who was the first CEO and builder of Fox News who revolutionised the news landscape in the US. Um, so I tuned in and I enjoyed that series so much I decided to read his book, which is You Are the Message, uh, Getting What You Want by Being Who You Are. And, uh, I mean, it's a in, book... In the genre a, of right-wing self-help books. Yeah, right-wing <laughs> self-help books. Well, if anybody needs... The, the Art of the Deal and You Are the Message. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> needs help, two, help two it's exemplars. me. Um, what it is, is, I mean, it's a book about his communications philosophy, basically. And, look, the, the frustrating thing about it is that it's aimed at chiefly, you know, business executives who need to give speeches or go and address the media about uh, when their company's in hot water or uh, speak to uh, AGMs of investors and so on. Um 
the good of it is that it really encapsulates his communications philosophy and it, sh- it gives a great insight into what he achieved at Fox News and the uh, mentality he took with him. And one of the first things he says is that television changed the rules, not just on TV and on communications of, of news, but for all of us. Now that we are used to television, we're expecting brevity, we are expecting uh, exciting presentation. Uh, and his message is, look, a lot of speaking coaches will say, you know, do this, do that, speak slowly, blah, 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 blah. He said, look... Forget all that. What you really need to do is be the you at your very best. You need to take what your shtick is, whatever that is, and, and, and perform it in such a way that it has maximum effect. Performing, not acting. Uh, and you can see that coming through in, again, rewatching the series The Loudest Voice in the way he developed his talent. I mean, the, it tells a story about the way he plucked somebody like a Sean Hannity out of obscurity, somebody who was working in talkback radio in Atlanta and two years before that had been a bricklayer or something and turned him into a star by encouraging him to be the best, and it sounds so trite and so hokey, but the best Sean Hannity he could be. Uh, and that was uh, that was his strategy. So it was a very interesting read. I, I, I read it partly in the context of doing presentation work and TV work and, and um, projects we're working on in the studio. Um, so it would have been better if it was a more at that, but for anybody who has to speak and rather than the old picturing people in their underwear, this is a very good uh, thing to read. So what, what what has it made you want to change? What, what, what So is it performance style? Just to be the best style? Gideon I can be. Just the, the best Gideon. Chris, yeah. So yeah. you are going to be even more Gideon <laughs> than, than you have been up to this point. Yes, the, the, full, the full, full Rosner. Um, no, look, uh, oh God, uh, funny hats. I mean, Peter Fitzsimmons has the yeah, bandana. And things like so that. Iconic. Look, I can't think of anything that I personally took away from in terms of my style, but um, it, it is a very, very interesting insight into anybody who has is interested in the media landscape in the US in Fox News or just wants to uh, brush up on their speaking when they have to give a toast at a wedding or something. Very I highly recommend. And it does drive authenticity. I mean, you owe, yeah. that, you owe that to the audience to, um, uh, to, to be who you are, even if it's a version of yourself. Correct. You're, it's actually about engaging. Um, another great book there. Uh, in fact, we're going to have a, uh, a special on books next week, Chris. We are, Scott. So um, uh, we're trying something out. So we haven't – this podcast has not been going a year. It's nearly a year. But um, So this is our first Christmas and we're going to do a special holiday episode. We're going to sp- speak to a number of IPA staff um, and friends about um, uh, the books that they recommend for holiday reading, which I'm very much looking forward to, Scott. Yeah, so that'll that'll give you your reading because uh, there is too many books, not enough time, but uh, yeah, summer's yeah, so coming it's, up. It's just to make you feel bad. Yeah, that's, that's really right. tell you what to buy. Episode. Take away to the to the beach <laughs> so, house or, or or the caravan park or, and, or and wherever. Fail else. to get around to reading. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there's, right. there's a Japanese word for that, isn't there? there? That you there's a Japanese word for the affliction of purchasing way more books than you have time to read. Really? I, yeah. I, affliction? I, would we call it an affliction? Uh, absolutely, it is. You know, <laughs> I think this is Room full of unread lifestyle. books, and then and then Marie Kondo comes along and a room full of unread books. You you don't think of it as your book collection; you think of it as your library. Yeah, that well, way, you never need to read the books. That they're, they're there for reference. Right. Okay. Oh, good to know. That's you a life hack. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Don't forget, Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au and join right now. Um, If you're listening to a podcast, please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe so you don't miss any further episodes. I'd like to say a big thank you to our panellists today, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Kurt Wallace. Thank you. And Gideon Rosner. Always a pleasure. Uh, And, of course, uh, Josh Stranger and his crew in the studio. And uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. (laughs) 